Our great God and Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You reveal yourself and you've spoken in the past in many and various ways. But we thank you that in these last days you've spoken to us by your Son. And so we ask for your Spirit's help this morning to see Jesus more clearly. Capture our minds with his reign and reshape our lives by his rule. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our house, my family is engaged in a battle. And it's being fought each day. Uh, let me show you our sequence trophy. This was designed by our four-year-old Archie. And each night, Jess and I contend with him uh, playing the board game sequence. We play the kids' version of it. If you're not familiar with it, it's where you need to line up a certain number of coloured tokens over various animals in a row. And it's a high-stakes game because whoever wins the sequence gets the sequence trophy and they get to sleep next to it for that night. <laughs> and it's been a very revealing little chapter in our family life. I've learnt that my son likes to win. <laughs> I didn't need to learn that my wife definitely likes to win. And I've learnt that I like to win. And we've all learnt that our youngest Jack likes to destroy our game. Well, this morning uh, we kick off in this new series, the book of Revelation. It's the very last book of the Bible. And it's not about a board game. It's about reality. But it is about a battle. A cosmic battle which is being fought each day. And as we'll become familiar with the book across the term, we'll see that it has a very deliberate sequence in the way that it's been arranged and overlapped together. And it's filled with numbers and colours and even animals. And there's even a destroyer who's out to ruin everything. But at the end of the day, it's also all about the one simple question, the answer to this question, who wins? And with that, ultimately, whose side are you on? In fact, right across our series this term, we're going to see how Revelation is all about the triumph of God's plan and the victory of his Lamb. So if you're writing notes this morning, there's three points. I want to help you to see from chapter 1 how John writes to impress on us a clearer vision of the risen and glorified Jesus. And he does so so that in the face of pressure and hostility and often difficult circumstances, you and I, if we count ourselves as followers of Jesus, will have firstly clarity, secondly confidence, and thirdly comfort. And so do make sure you've got that passage from Revelation 1 open. And we'll pick it up from point one, clarity. Oh, clarity, verses one to four. My aim here is just to give a bit of a brief introduction to the whole book as revelation, as prophecy, and a letter. So starting with how verse one begins. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Notice firstly that it's a revelation. The very first word of the book is in the original apocalypsis. It's a Greek word where we get our English, the apocalypse. And it just means to unveil or to lift a curtain. But it's quite a simple concept, really, because later over morning tea or over the party that's happening outside, uh, someone may ask you the question, how was your weekend? And in that moment, you get to decide, are you going to make a revelation to them? 
If you say nothing, your weekend will remain a mystery to them. They may have guesses, but they won't know for sure. But if you reveal to them your perspective on your weekend, then something unknown will have been made known. And that's all the revelation is. In fact, if you're not a follower of Jesus, perhaps you're just visiting today, or perhaps you are in the process of exploring these things someone may have brought you. Uh, this concept is really at the very heart of uh, really quite a fundamental Christian claim about how is it that we can know God relationally. After all, by his very nature, God isn't like us. He's not material, he's spiritual. He transcends us. And we can't guess our way to God, and we can't even reason with our minds who God is. No, the way to know God is through his revelation. It's through God making himself known. He speaks and he acts, and he's done so throughout history. But he reveals himself to us in a relational way to be known and to be trusted. And this whole very last book of the Bible, Revelation, is just called that. It's an apocalypse because God is choosing to uncover for us something that would otherwise be hidden uh, so that we're not left clueless about what comes next. That's what we've called our series, What Comes Next. Instead, Revelation gives us clarity. Uh, well, secondly, notice what's significant about this particular revelation. Uh, we're told in verse 3, it's a word of prophecy. And that speaks to its origins. In other words, who it comes from. It's a God's eye view of things. We're being given God's perspective from heaven about what must soon take place. John describes his whole book in verse 2 as the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And notice how it is given and received. In those first two verses, we see it's from God to Jesus, to Jesus' angel, to John, to his servants. And who are they? We're going to see shortly, they're in particular the seven churches in Asia Minor. But ultimately, it's also us. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you're God's servant. And what John's written down is for you. Why? So that we can have clarity. Once knew a guy back in high school, he was brilliant at languages, a very intelligent person, a big reader. I asked him uh, over one summer as a new year was starting, uh, what did you do over the summer break? And he told me, I memorized the Elvish language from the back of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, he's a lovely guy, but if you ask me, that's a bit of an obscure way to spend your summer. And I did get him to write down some things in Elvish just to test him. Uh, and it looked very confusing and peculiar. And perhaps you feel a bit like that about this book, Revelation. That it can feel intimidating and strange and otherworldly, like it's for scholars or at least just a particularly weird type of person. But it is worth remembering, this is actually a book that climaxes the whole story of God's revelation to us. And it's written for ordinary Christians like you and I. Most likely those who were living under the rule of the Roman Emperor Domitian, probably around the mid-90s AD in the first century. And they, like us, needed to remember the promise John gives in verse 3. Blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud these words. Blessed are those who hear it and, importantly, who take it to heart, take to heart what is written in it. I was very encouraged uh, hearing from someone yesterday 
who was helping out uh, with the maintenance of our grounds uh, here from this congregation. And they were just sharing with me how they've just been reading ahead in Revelation to the end of the book to get ready for this term. And uh, he was saying, I'm already up to chapter 19. And he's not a growth group leader. He's just someone deeply convinced that God's word is good for me. Because it is. God wants us to be the kind of people who have clarity about the things that really matter. To be the kind of person who hears, but doesn't just hear, who takes to heart and responds deeply to the Word of God. Who lives wisely in light of this present age, because John tells us the time is near. That's the blessed life. Do you believe it? Do we live like it? Well, we've seen already how this book is a revelation to give us clarity so we're not clueless. It's a prophetic word because it gives us God's eye perspective on things. But thirdly, it's also quite simply a letter. And that may be for more familiar territory for us. Have a look at verse 4. Think about the letters that I receive these days. I, I... I don't receive many. Uh, My grandmother occasionally writes to me. Uh, We have a sponsored child who writes occasionally as well. But apart from that, it's been a while. But a letter, often the very first thing we do, we see, who's it from? Verse 4, John, who's it written to? To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, that's just Western Turkey. In other words, this is a letter that's been written in time and space. In verse 11, we're actually told who those seven churches are. They're Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And we know historically that at the time John was writing, there would have actually been at least two or three other churches at that time too. But as we're going to see throughout the whole book of Revelation, seven, that number seven is very significant. It's symbolic. It always means fullness and completion in particularly the mindset of Uh, Jewish writers, Uh, we think back to Genesis 1 and 2, that the fullness and completion of the creation account climax culminated in the seventh day, the Sabbath. And so seen in this symbolic way, which is as we're going to see how John uses the number seven right throughout the letter, John is writing a letter to seven churches, but it's to all the churches. It's representative. And we're going to see more of that next week in more detail when we look at those various messages in chapters 2 and 3. But I take it that this John, who is the human author of the letter, who's writing, I take it he's the apostle. He's a disciple from the gospel accounts, now a very old man. Uh, Now, we aren't told that explicitly about him. It could be another John. Uh, But I take it his first readers didn't need any further explanation who he was. It was self-evident. And in verse 9, we're told he's been banished to the island of Patmos, which was a bit of a remote, rocky island in the Mediterranean Sea, just off the coast of Turkey. It reminds me uh, of my in-laws who once had American friends out to Sydney, and my father-in-law organised a trip to Shark Island, uh, not knowing that once you get there, there's no ferry until later in the day. And uh, they spent a very long day in the rain, miserable, trapped. And they all refer, oh, Shark Island. I can't do the accent, but they all remember Shark Island. Well, in verse 9, we're told John is in exile, stuck on this rocky, remote island. And we're told a bit more about John, though, verse 9, a little later. He describes himself, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I don't miss that. John was a prisoner. 
a prisoner because he preached the gospel of Jesus. And he's writing to other Christians who themselves at the time were facing varying degrees of pressure and hostility and difficult circumstances. And it was all for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. It's a letter that's intended to give clarity. It's written by someone who really gets it. John's in exile because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why? Because he got clarity about the one thing that really matters about all, above all else. In the end, John knows who wins. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that the Christians back then, in Rome's polytheistic culture, many gods, weren't seen as the winners. They were the losers. You only had to go back a couple of decades in living memory to the time under the Emperor Nero to see them under intense persecution, being lit on fire as lamps, uh, being torn to pieces by animals. Who on earth in their right mind would patiently endure such suffering? Well, the ones with clarity, the ones who ultimately know who wins at the end of the day. And so John writes them a revelation, a prophecy and a letter to give them clarity about whose side is really worth being on. Well, point two, we're looking at verses four to eight. And John also writes to give these Christians confidence. And I trust you've noticed that the Western culture we live in today is rapidly becoming more hostile to Christian things in general. Now, it's not as bad as it was in the first century AD, but in some parts of society, Christians are no longer something to be merely tolerated. Increasingly, Christians and their views are being viewed as a cancer. And it can feel at times intimidating, not by all, but by some. Some of you know what it's like to have a close friend or a family member who acts toward you in a hostile way because of something you said because you're a Christian. Some of you know what it's like to feel under pressure in the workplace to hide your Christian values and beliefs, to stay silent, to not talk about it, but not just that, to submit to other contrary views and beliefs. I know that. Some of, uh, particularly the younger members at Evening Church, have shared with me what their workplace is like. Perhaps you've felt embarrassed before when you've read a story in the media or you know someone else you know or care about has read it and it just has a mocking tone about the Christian church. Maybe you've been greeted with cynicism or scepticism from something, someone you just met. I know that feeling it comes right after the question of what do you do for work? But it is easy and this isn't all the time but it is on occasion and we, we see it crop up at various times. It is easy in such times to become disheartened. To feel like you're a bit of a loser on the wrong side of history. Maybe to even feel tempted to lose confidence altogether in what you believe in. Well, remember that John himself is writing in Revelation to a group of Christians from the early church, those seven churches, who themselves were very much a minority. Pressured and persecuted, no doubt feeling knocked about. But look at where he redirects their attention in verses 4 to 8 to strengthen them. To build them up. In the second half of verse 4. Grace and peace to you. From who? Comes from the triune God. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And they're all mentioned there in verses 4 and 5. Beginning with God the Father. From him who is and who was and who is to come. And having just been in Exodus. We're well prepared for this. Uh, that should be like a trigger for us. 
I remember back to Exodus 3, verse 14. Moses is at the burning bush, and what does God do? He reveals his name. He takes the initiative to share with Moses who he is. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Grace and peace come from the eternal God who is and who was and who is to come. And also from the seven spirits before the throne, which again, remembering how seven is used throughout the whole book for fullness and completeness, I take it as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace comes from Him. And grace and peace come from Jesus Christ. And we're given three titles about Him in verse 5. He is the faithful witness. He bore testimony. You just have to read John's Gospel about that. That word witness, martyr testimony, is used over and over again. Jesus bore testimony even to the point of death. He didn't deny his father. We pointed back to his cross. Secondly, he's the firstborn from the dead, which shows us the firstborn language. He's the heir of the whole world. And we're being pointed to his resurrection. And thirdly, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, which is reassuring to know because when things do look out of control, perhaps even when there's a leader in control who's completely anti-God, Jesus' ascension reminds us that he rules and reigns over every ruling power. We don't see it now, but it is a reality that God has revealed to us. As Proverbs 21 verse 1 puts it, In the Lord's hands, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. Remember back in the day of Daniel, that was exactly true. Kingdoms come, kings come and go. But the Lord is sovereign. And so when an election is lost, when a dictator is put into power in any place around the world, take confidence. Christian, worried Christian living in the Roman Empire, because even then Jesus remains completely in control. And then we'll see throughout the book just something which happens over and over. In verse 5, halfway through onwards, it's like John can't hold back from breaking out in praise and worship, because all the time he knows the answer to the question, who ultimately wins? So from the second half of verse 5, he writes, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Remember that pattern we saw? I was so well placed, having just done Exodus, that pattern we saw of the God who loves and elects and chooses his people, and he frees them from slavery. And he redeems them and buys them and purchases them to be his people. By the end of the book, they're worshippers. Verse 6. See if this triggers your memory. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 7, John goes on to thread together two Old Testament quotes. And the first one is from Daniel chapter 7. We heard it read well earlier. And in its context, in that chapter, Daniel's given an end times vision. A picture of heaven on judgment day. When God is described, who's described as the Ancient of Days, is seated in his court. And he opens up the book for judgment. And then all of a sudden in Daniel's vision, coming with the clouds was one like a son of man who approaches the ancient of days and he's given all authority, power and dominion. One 
uh, one who has power, authority and dominion over every nation and over every people. And he's given an everlasting kingdom. It's a prediction about Jesus' enthronement in heaven when he ascends. That's the Daniel bit. But then John also uh, adds to that piece a second one from Zechariah 12 verse 10. And there the context is of a prophecy about the defeat of Israel's enemies. But the interesting thing here is that John adds two phrases, every eye and all peoples. And it's to show how Zechariah was looking beyond Israel to a time of final vindication all over the earth. His return in judgment, Jesus' return in judgment, won't be in secret. But it will include mourning and sorrow and regret for those who find themselves on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of Jesus. It might not look like it now, but one day John is telling us that Jesus' triumph will be an open one. And it will matter whose side you're on. There's no third team. You're either with Jesus, in which case on this day of judgment when the books are opened, you can be entirely confident when he returns. Or you are against Jesus. And in which case that day will be a day that's terrifying. But it will come, John says, so shall it be. Amen. Well, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is the very grounds of our confidence. He's the A to Z of the alphabet. I'm trying to teach our two-year-old the alphabet at the moment. Uh, he gets mixed up with the, the letters in the middle, but he knows those two letters, A, Z. God's the beginning and the end. He knows everything. We might wonder at times, is it really worth it to stick my neck out as a Christian? Am I just being an idiot for doing so? The world around me, the Roman emperor, atheism, Western secularism, my friend, my mom, my dad, they all look so mighty and so powerful. But John reminds us, God is almighty. He's where our confidence ultimately lies. Well, point three. We've seen that John writes to give us clarity. He writes to give us confidence. And thirdly, he writes to give us comfort. Because the all-powerful, the glorious, the risen, victorious Jesus... He is also the one who stands among his churches. And he holds them in his very hands. And here we'll move quite quickly through verses 9 to 20. I'll leave some of it to uh, the kids over party day to show you their pictures. And you can ask them about it. But I want you to remember the setting for this little section. It's John in exile on the island of Patmos. And then in verse 10, he tells us it was on the Lord's day. And I take it that's probably a Sunday, remembering that Jesus rose from dead on the first day of the week, the Sunday. And then he says, I was in the Spirit. 
And that's a phrase that turns up at least four times throughout the book. And each time it describes John under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he's given in each situation a, a great vision, a perspective from heaven. And he writes and says, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I don't know if you remember last term. Again, we've been situated well. At the bottom of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Verse 12, John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And we're told just at the end of the passage in verse 20, we're given a code. Uh, that's the other game I like to play with Archie, Mastermind, where you've got to crack the code. Well, here it's very easy. John tells us what the seven lampstands are. They're the seven churches, symbolically. And it's an appropriate uh, metaphor, image, visual, because churches are light. They shine in a dark world. Christians are the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. We represent him as ambassadors. We shine in an otherwise dark world that's turned its back on God. Verse 13. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Daniel chapter 7 again. John describes then this overwhelming picture for us, engaging our senses of sight and sound, and it's like this cascade of Old Testament echoes and illusions colliding together in Jesus. Because that's what we need. When we're tempted to lose perspective, when we're tempted to lose a sense of proportion and to be overly worried and anxious and concerned about the wrong kinds of things, what we need is to be refocused with a right perspective, to stop and to see who Jesus really is, God's revelation. And so we're given this awesome picture of Jesus to recapture our imagination, to see him as risen and glorified because he's the son of man. He rules as a king. And he wears this priestly robe down to the floor, as Exodus speaks about. He's the one who represents us before God. And then he's described with white hair. And Josh pointed it out earlier. It's the language for the very Ancient of Days himself from Daniel 7, which white like wool, as white as snow, and it's symbolic of great wisdom and honour. And his eyes are blazing. Because he sees everything. You ever think about that God? God sees everything. He is and he was and he is to come and he sees all. His feet were like bronze. His voice was like just a tidal wave of water crashing down. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And again we get the code in verse 20. The seven stars are the angels. And you might have a footnote like in my Bible which says messengers. Uh, that's the word, angels, angelos, messengers. And it could be that these are the pastor leaders or the teachers of the early church. Uh, it could be that. Uh, I think more likely, uh, as is the case throughout most of the book of Revelation and throughout most apocalyptic literature, literature that it is spiritual guardian-like angels, uh, angelic spiritual figures. And I think the sort of hints we get in that direction are passages like Daniel 10, or even Matthew 18, or even that very curious uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 11 of uh, head coverings because of the angels. But we only get hints either way, we're, we're not certain. But coming out of his mouth is 
a sharp, double-edged sword, which is a symbol for the Word of God. It cuts both ways. We hear about it in Hebrews and Ephesians 6. It wounds and it heals. And his face, Jesus's, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And that reminds us in the Gospels of Jesus up on a mountain with Moses and Elijah and his face transfigured. It's glorious and awesome and terrifying. John tells us so. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Of Isaiah in chapter 6, woe is me. And you might be wondering, well, where's the comfort in all of this? But then look at what happens next. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. There is a great comfort that we don't need to worry or be afraid because Jesus is eternal. He's God. He's alive forever and ever. He's strong and he's powerful. He judges and he saves. And John writes to give us clarity, confidence and comfort because Jesus is with us. And he holds us and he holds the keys of death and Hades. Uh, we live in a strata property and uh, during the week, uh, one of the properties lost their power and uh, they came to my door and said, do you have the, the key for the electricity meter box? And I said, no, no, Unit 1 has that. So they went to Unit 1 and, well, Unit 1 has the keys. They've got the access. They're the only one who can control the box. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I have the keys. I have the authority which means we don't need to be afraid, not even of death. And some of us are closer to death than we realize. God knows when that day will be, but that's not terrifying because we already know the answer to that question, the answer to, in the end, who wins? Jesus does because he's conquered death already. And now he's in charge of life and of death and eternity, which simply means which side are you on? If you're on his side already this morning, nothing could be more comforting. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't compromise. Don't disobey Jesus. And if you're tempted to, think of this image of the one who is almighty and powerful and victorious and glorious. He loves you. So shine for him. But if you're not on his side, what are you waiting for? Come to him for grace and peace. Trust in him to be freed from your sins by his blood. And be warned, in the end, Jesus wins. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega. And we pray that you'd fill our minds and hearts with this vision of your Son, risen and glorified, the first and the last, the living one who holds the very keys of death and Hades. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see Jesus clearly and grant us faith to trust in his blood and to patiently endure in Jesus' name. Amen.